morning. We now join a live worship Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible study this morning. A special welcome to those of you who are here with us in the gym here at St. Paul's, those listening in the St. Louis area on AM850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. If you don't know, my name is Tanner Wade. I am the former, now former vicar here at St. Paul's, a now fourth year seminary student. And uh, we get a chance, as is our usual practice, to look at the lectionary readings for the following week, the 19th Sunday after Pentecost. But before we dig into God's word, let us have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today thankful for the many gifts that you bestow upon us. We pray that uh, those blessings we would never take for granted, especially that blessing that means most of all the blessing of your son, Jesus Christ, in our lives. We pray that as we study your word and as we go about our weeks, that we would never do it for our own gain or to serve ourselves, but to serve you in all that we do. Amen. So to begin with today, and there are handouts, I should say, over on the bleachers, uh, if anyone does not have one. But to begin with today, we're going to start by looking at the epistle lesson, which is from 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. Starting in verse uh, 14 of chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. It's interesting, in the context of Paul's letter to Timothy, that uh, just before this he had given Timothy some instructions about kind of what not to do. And so now he contrasts that by saying, but for you, but for you, Timothy, here's what you ought to do. These last verses of uh, 2 Timothy are what many scholars... There we go. Mic cut off. That was my bad. Of what many scholars believe uh, are the last words that Paul wrote that we still have. Paul is in prison in Rome at the time of writing this. And many believe it is just shortly before he would be executed, sometime between about 64 to maybe 67 uh, A.D. And so as we kind of think about this, as we dig into this, think about this is kind of Paul's farewell letter. Paul knows exactly what's coming down the tracks for his life. He knows what his suffering and what his imprisonment is going to mean this time. And he tells Timothy to continue in that thing that he had learned and had firmly believed, knowing from whom he learned it. Well, what did he learn? Paul here, it's just simply his faith, learning about who God is, what God has done for him in Christ. And when Paul says, knowing from whom you've learned it, in some ways, there's three answers to this question. The first is, who is one of the people Timothy learned this from? Well, it was Paul himself. Timothy had been an, an apprentice of sorts to Paul and had traveled with him on many of his journeys, and now Timothy was uh, leading the church in Ephesus. But then there's also, uh, in verse 15, we get the kind of the second answer to this question, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. We read earlier in 2 Timothy in chapter 1 that Paul commends Timothy for his faith that he first learned from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. 
that from childhood, these two women had raised Timothy in the faith. And then the third answer to knowing from whom he learned it is, of course, who taught him these things? Well, God himself through faith. So verse 15, and how from, chi- from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That word breathed out by God, it's the only instance we have it occurred in the Bible, and it's literally just taking the word God, theos, theo, where we get words like theology today in the Greek, and then the word for spirit or breath, and combining it together. So this is literally all scripture is God's breath, or maybe in better English, God breathed, which is why we translate it that way. And that's a pretty important thing that I think sometimes we overlook, especially in an age where a lot of people want to say that Scripture is just what man wanted to create, that we don't need to take everything here as God's word, that clearly some of it has to be made up. But for Paul and Paul's encouragement to Timothy, he doesn't leave any other option than that it all Scripture, every Scripture, every sacred writing is God-breathed, and it's useful, it's advantageous or profitable. It's something, that word useful, is when something is in particular advantage for someone to have. Think about our lives as Christians. What are the advantages we gain through having the gift of God's word? Paul says it provides teaching, provides instruction for us. The literal act of teaching us what God has done for us, who God is, and what his will is in our lives. This is one of the great blessings, the positive gift that is the scriptures for us in our own Christian lives. And then he says it's for reproof. That word reproof is what you would say for someone who is standing accused of something at a trial. That is, it's the thing that tells us, hey, you're not perfect, which hopefully we all know, but can also find sometimes so hard to admit. It's a strong expression of disapproval. It's saying that God doesn't want you to act in that sinful nature anymore. And it's also useful for correcting And you maybe seem like, well, that seems kind of redundant. He just says it was for reproval, and now it's for correcting. But here again, this is why sometimes it is actually a very great blessing to look at the Greek text, because here correcting is not like um, disciplining someone for doing something wrong, but rather building someone up in the right manner, teaching them something in the right way. Other places it's used, and I love this illustration, when a ransacked city has been restored to its former glory, it's considered, the same word is used, corrected. You know, it'd be like if a bone breaks and you correct it, but in a positive uh, way. And then finally, it trains us. That is, brings us up properly according 
to God's will for us in our lives. It's the same way that, or same word that Paul says in Ephesians, parents ought to discipline their children or train them in the discipline. It's when God's word says, hey, you ought to be doing this. And so in a sense, these four things kind of summarize the Christian life in a way. It teaches us about who, uh, God's word teaches us about who God is, what he has done, who we are to him, and what that means for us in our lives. It tells us when we're not doing what God wants us to be doing in our lives, it then shows us what we ought to do, and then encourages us to stay disciplined in that. Then moving on to verse 17, Paul says, why? Scripture is so important that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That human beings of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's interesting, again, that word equipped, and if we think about our own Christian lives, it'd be the way someone would describe a soldier right before he goes out to battle. That he's got everything he needs. It's kind of like that, that checklist, that final checklist, maybe before you go on a family vacation, right? Got your toiletries, got your clothes, hopefully, right? Got your plane tickets. And once you've gone through that checklist, you're fully equipped to go enjoy some time away, maybe. Or if you're like me, you end up still forgetting something. But uh, So to be equipped for every good work. So before we get further into 2 Timothy, I just want to ask, are there any questions about that first kind of half of the reading? Okay, well, let's go into chapter 4. And Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by, appearing, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Paul here is saying that he's about to make this encouragement, not just before Timothy, but before God himself. That he wants Timothy to know how seriously he takes what he's about to say to him. And what is it that he says? Preach the word. That same word that is breathed out by God, that is God's breath and that is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correcting and training in righteousness, Proclaim it. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As we look at our lives, we have moments where perhaps it seems like it's not a good season to preach God's word. Essentially here Paul is saying, preach God's word be faithful when it's convenient, but also when it's inconvenient. That what we're called to do as Christians to proclaim the good news of Christ and the gospel is not just when we're around people who are not going to say anything back to us, or it's not just when we're in the safety and comfort of our own homes, but it's in every moment of our lives, in the convenient moments and in the inconvenient moments, preach the word. 
to be ready to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. There you know there's some similar words to what he used to describe God's word. Reprove, teaching, rebuke. What's he telling Timothy? That when you preach the word, what does God's word do to people? Well, sometimes it convicts them. And sometimes it corrects them or tells them what they ought to be doing. But then also it encourages them. That it's not just a set of laws that you beat someone over the head with. In fact, he even tells Timothy to do so in complete patience and teaching. It's interesting as we think back to our own lives, that's always hard. It's like you, you, had, you could have just stopped before you said with complete patience and things would be a lot easier, right? But of course, we know that's not how God operates. He has complete patience with us. And we are called as one who is undeservedly loved, redeemed by him, to have complete patience in how we teach God's word to those around us. Continuing into chapter 4, verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That doesn't sound like anything we deal with today, does it? Of course it does. And in fact, here Paul is not saying that that's not going on even in his day, but rather the point he's trying to make is that this is going to happen. This isn't going to be something that happens for a period of time and then is done, but rather people since the first century have always been looking for teachers that suit their own passions. I think back on my life and sometimes uh, those sermons you remember, sometimes even years after you heard them preached. And I find that most of the time it's because it's exactly what I did not want to hear in that moment, why that sermon was so impactful. That left to our own accord, we would all probably like to go find things that suited our own desires, things that didn't reprove us, correct us, train us, things that just gave us a pat on the back and said, you do you and you are good. And so Paul's acknowledging something that I think we can all look at in our lives and in two senses, one, look at ourselves and how we may sometimes look to the teachings in God's word and those who teach us God's word that just suit our own passions because maybe we don't want to hear what we probably need to hear. But then also look at the world around us and see how prevalent this is in today's society. That if you don't like what someone says, you just go to a different place until you find the thing, the one that just agrees with you. Yet Paul here is clear that's not the point of preaching, and for Christians, that's not the point of our faith, to just go wherever seems to make us the happiest. But rather, our foundation is in exactly what he told Timothy to preach, the scripture that is God-breathed. We continue into 2 Timothy 4, verse 4. 
so they, teach, they will find for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Again, this is a twofold kind of couplet of the same problem. That on the one hand, when people hear the things they don't want to hear, they're just going to stop listening. They're not going to want to hear the things that they may need to hear from God's word that might disagree with how they are living or with what they are doing. And on the other hand, they will go and wander off into myths, into the things that are not breathed out by God, but the things that simply just suit their own passions and their own desires in life. In verse 5, we read, As for you, so here's Paul addressing Timothy, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul makes it clear, you know, these are some of his last words to his dear apprentice, his good friend. And he reminds him to be Sober-minded. Here it's a spiritual drunkenness that he's talking about. That as he goes through his ministry, remain focused on that scripture, what he is supposed to preach, the thing that is breathed out by God. Not just doing his own thing, but always rooting it in what God's word says and what God's word tells us to be true. And then Paul encourages him to fulfill his ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of the gospel. Now, as Christians, in some ways, we don't necessarily easily relate to Timothy. We don't know what it was like to be in first century Ephesus. We don't know what that would eventually mean for him in his life what that would mean for his freedom or lack thereof, for his safety or well-being. But in another way, we are completely relatable to Timothy, that in whatever we do, we are called to proclaim the gospel in our daily lives. And that doesn't mean you have a bullhorn and you go around your place of business and just say John 3.16 over and over, but rather how you treat one another how you talk to one another, how you talk even about yourself, the way you conduct yourself. And then when those chances arise, do exactly what Paul told Timothy to do, preach the word, that same word that is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, correcting, training, reproving, and righteousness. So that is the epistle lesson for next Sunday. Uh, I'll open it up if there's any questions about that first lesson. All right. Well, let's move on to the Old Testament reading. And this is one of the most interesting stories in the Bible. You may have read it many times. It's Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 30. Jacob wrestling with God. Now, before we begin looking at the specific text for the reading next week, 
it is good to have a little bit of a spark notes on the background of the text. If you remember, Jacob had previously stolen his brother Esau's blessing. Then he goes to Laban, and he marries Rachel and Leah, but then he also loses favor in Laban's eyes. And so the Lord tells him to return to the land of his fathers. And as he's going back to return to the land of his fathers, there's a report that Esau is coming out to him with 400 men. And so Jacob becomes very fearful for his own safety, but also the safety of his family. So just before our reading, Jacob has actually sent presents out to his brother Esau, hoping to appease him. And then Jacob sent his family across the river and split them into two camps, across what is known as the Ford of Jabbok. It's a little stream that's attached to the Jordan River. So it's not a giant body of water, but significantly big enough that if Esau would attack Jacob, that his family could probably start running away. And then we get to our reading. That same night, the same night that he had split his family into two camps and sent him across the river, he rose and took his two wives, two female servants, and 11 children across the fort of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Jacob sends them all across, and then he's there by himself. Now, we're not entirely sure exactly what was his rationale of doing this. One possibility was he thought, well, if Esau did come, or if danger would befall him, and he would die, well, maybe that would be good enough. Okay, we got Jacob, you know, we'll let the rest of them go. Uh, another option is simply, he was pretty stressed out. That next day was going to be a big day in his life, and maybe he wanted to spend a little time by himself, trying to maybe gather what he was going to say or what he was going to do. But either way, we're not entirely sure um, why he went and was by himself. But then we read that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, I say man in quotation marks because we'll later learn that this is not a man but an angel of the Lord. But it's interesting there. So this, he's by himself, and this guy in night wrestles with him for hours until the breaking of day. And the word in the Hebrew there is literally get dusty, or dust is the root word. So you can imagine they're tussling around at night. Who knows if there's a full moon, if they can see very much. But they're tussling around until the breaking of day, hours. This would have been an exhausting struggle. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Here's the first indication that this may not just be some normal man that decided to have a wrestling match in the middle of the night. All he had to do after struggling with Jacob all night was just touch his hip, and his hip was put out of socket. If you think about the kind of power, and also probably the kind of surprise that would have been on Jacob's face, here's this guy who he's been struggling with all night, and towards 
the end of their battle, he just touches his hip, and I'm sure the pain was immense. I've never dislocated my hip, but I can't imagine it feels very pleasant, especially when you're trying to wrestle with somebody. And then he said, the man, in quotation marks, to Jacob, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man said to Jacob, what is your name? And here's one of the biggest ironies probably in the entire Old Testament. How did Jacob get Esau's blessing? Does anyone remember? Yes, he dressed like him. He pretended to be somebody else so that he could get this blessing. And now what does this man require to bless him? And it's not as if this angel of the Lord did not know Jacob's name. But I think it's probably a good reminder on the day before he's about to meet his brother about how he earned the last blessing that he got. And so he asked Jacob what his name is, and Jacob answers him, Jacob. Then the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Here is the next biggest clue that this is not just some man that was wandering around in the desert looking for people to fight at night or wrestle with. What is the blessing that he gives to him? That your name will no longer be Jacob, Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. How did he strive with men? Well, first and obvious one was he took his brother's blessing and he was successful. But here is where we get an indication that who is, has he been wrestling with all night? God. Now, there are a lot of commentators who will say this messenger of the Lord who wrestles with Jacob in Genesis 32 is actually a pre-incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnation of Christ. And there, I mean, if we wanted to get into that, we'd have to spend about three or four more hours on the, all the reasons why and what they point to. But then there are also those who believe that it's simply an angel of the Lord, an angelic being sent by God to do uh, God's will to wrestle with Jacob. But either way, Jacob has now wrestled all night with God and has prevailed. Now, what seems ironic about saying he has prevailed? He didn't give up. But do we read that he pinned down this man, in quotation marks, he was wrestling with? Did we read he actually won the match, so to speak? before we get into too many wrestling terms. Um, no. But simply, we read uh, that the man, in quotation marks, remember again, the angel of the Lord, did not prevail against Jacob. So what does it mean in this battle that Jacob has prevailed? Well, one, he's still alive. But it doesn't mean that he beat down this man he's been wrestling with all night, but rather 
He simply did not give up. And we get into verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now, what might be challenging about that last verse? If you think back to other instances in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's a great... That, that's exactly right, Don. I think we all probably have heard or, or remember, no one shall see the face of God and live. And if we think about other instances where we see, um, where God is seen by his people, Moses and the burning bush, Mount Sinai, where even the backside of God left Moses in this, with a dazzling uh, glow on his face and everyone was astounded, when Elijah is hiding from Jezebel in the caves, the silence, that God was in the silence, and then he spoke to Elijah. So it seems a little strange here that did he really see God face to face? Now, of course, the one answer is, we're not sure, we weren't there, right? There's no CNN, you know, video, uh, cell phone video recording of this fight where you can see what Jacob saw. But then there's also the other point. Has anyone seen God face to face? Think about the New Testament. Has anyone seen God face to face? Yeah, thousands of people have seen Jesus face to face. And that's actually one of the arguments some commentators make as to why they believe this is the second person of the Trinity, because what do we confess in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is truly very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And yet, thousands of people saw him face to face when he walked on this earth, and even after he rose from the dead. So have people seen God face to face? Yes. So there is another, that, like I said, that's one sense as to why they point, uh, a lot of commentators will point to this being a pre-incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. That being said, we want to be careful anytime there's something like this where there's a lot of speculation about what could it be that we don't make a blanket generic statement and say it has to be that way. Do we read anywhere in the Old Testament where we see, you know, this man was actually the Messiah that would come later on and then would be crucified, buried, and risen from the dead? No, we don't see that in Genesis 32, expressly stated. But when you think about Jacob's experience, what occurred, how it occurred, and then what the man says to Jacob, that he has striven, wrestled with, literally, God and prevailed, it does seem to be a pretty clear or, uh, inclination that this is the pre-incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. So it, it, that's why I said it's one of the most fascinating stories, because there's just a lot we don't know. We don't know why God sent an angel to wrestle with him all 
night long. We don't know why this man came and put Jacob's hip out of socket. But it's also a story of great deliverance. Because, of course, what would happen to Jacob when he met with Esau? Did Esau try to kill him? No, he ran and kissed him. Uh, So I'll open up if there's any questions about the Old Testament or the epistle reading before we get into the gospel reading. Yes. Uh, So that's a good question. The question was, is there any scripture saying that his hip socket had been put back together? No, and in fact, in the next verse, just after our reading ends, it talks about that when he was going, uh, the next day when he was walking, he was limping. So again, I don't know, as part of that blessing, perhaps did this uh, man who he wrestled with heal him? Um, I don't know, maybe we don't read of it, but perhaps Jacob had this discomfort then for the rest of his life. But again, this is one where we don't know other than it says in the next verse he was limping, which would seem to indicate that he was at least still in some deal of discomfort uh, after his wrestling match. All right. And then let's get to the gospel reading, which is really a, really an interesting parable. It's in Luke chapter 18. It's on the back side of your handout. Uh, Luke 18, 1 to 8. Oh, actually, you know what? I have something else I want to say about the Old Testament reading first that I just remembered. I found this great quote uh, about this story that I think really kind of summarizes it nicely. At the heart of these reversals lies a mystery, that God works graciously in the midst of struggle, and on the one hand, though Jacob struggles with people and with God, he receives God's blessing freely by grace. And on the other hand, though Jacob receives God's blessing, his life continues to be one of striving. Later, Jacob, the deceiver, is deceived by his children about his beloved son, Joseph, and then discovers in a struggle for food in a time of famine that not only Joseph, but also the gracious blessing and provision of God is still well and alive in his life. You think about that, that does provide a great paradox, that Jacob, the one who got a blessing by deceiving, the one who does spend the rest of his life either being deceived and then striving against man, that God freely and richly gives his blessing to him. So that's the last thing I wanted to say about the Old Testament reading. Now going to the gospel reading, Luke 18, 1 to 8, the parable of the persistent widow. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to pray and not lose heart. He, of course, here is Jesus. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, you might be thinking, okay, what what exactly does that mean? And uh, for those who've gone through probably confirmation, we remember with the first commandment that Luther's explanation for the first commandment is that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So what does it mean that this judge does not fear God nor respects man? Well, he didn't place God as any importance in his life. He did not have any reverence 
towards God. And when it came to man, he didn't really much care about him either. So who does that leave that judge caring about? I heard it himself, right? This is a guy who is looking out for himself first and foremost. That was about how can you help me? I'm not going to really worry about helping you until I can find that first part out first. Now, that's important because of who we read comes to him. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. What could a widow offer this man? Especially in a day, an age where most of one's inheritance did not go to the wife of the man who died, but to his sons. What did a widow have to offer? Nothing. To someone who is coming to the guy who thinks first and foremost about what he gets in life, and the person is coming to him asking for something and can give him absolutely nothing in return. And she kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. It's almost like a bad sitcom sitcom. Uh, plot where this woman keeps knocking on his door, knocking on his door. No, go away, go away. And then eventually he relents. And in verse 4 we read, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. You can see just where this judge's attitude is. This woman just keeps on asking. And I don't really care about her. And I especially don't care about her because she's probably poor and can't help me out at all. And he doesn't care about doing the right thing because he does not fear God. And yet even this man who by all accounts is really a wicked fellow, this judge, is not exactly a good guy because she kept coming he will give her justice and then listen to Jesus' words and hear what the unrighteous judge says and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night will he delay long over them now let's go back to verse 1 what is the point of this parable one of the few parables where we're given the express point as to why Jesus told the parable before he even says a word. In verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and to not lose heart. So what point is Jesus trying to make here to those whom he's speaking? Keep on praying. And why ought we to keep on praying? Because God loves you. And think about it. If this unrighteous judge who does not fear God, nor in any way respect man, if that guy eventually gives in, how much quicker, and even says this, I tell you, he will, give them justice, he will give justice to them speedily. 
How much quicker will the God who loves you, the God who sent his son to die for you so that you might be reconciled with him, how much quicker would God give justice to his elect? Now, it's interesting. There's always the application, right? So keep praying, but pray for what? What? God's will be done. Yeah, in some ways, this is a great reminder uh, of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. What does it mean for God to give justice to his elect, that his will be done? Now, does that mean I start praying every single day for a brand new truck? It's going to happen? No. So then how, what types of things do you think Jesus is saying that God gives to the ones he loves? Spiritual gifts? Think about Paul. If you, if you were at 8 o'clock, you heard uh, Pastor Siva King give a, a great little background of what Paul was dealing with at, uh, in jail in Rome. How does Paul talk about Jesus? The last verse of our epistle reading today, when we are faithless, he is faithful. That truly God gives us our faith and he keeps us strong in that faith. And so what we ought to pray is absolutely, thy will be done, God. But first and foremost in that is strengthen my faith, especially in times when it's not easy. We all come to church here on a Sunday morning, and, and, and maybe it feels like a little bit of a, a, a spiritual steroid booster, that all of a sudden you're, okay, I, I get it. I know, what I, I know what my outlook and my attitude's supposed to be. And then we hit Monday morning, and you've got 10 emails before you even get to work about how all these things got messed up, or how you didn't do maybe something you were supposed to, and you forgot, or even you get home and... There are certain things that you were supposed to do around the house and did not, and yet we so quickly lose that attitude of faith and grace and mercy and forgiveness that God wants us to have in our life. And then finally, Jesus ends with the question, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Here Jesus is telling his disciples, believe. And when you have a tough time believing, pray continually. Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 12 to pray without ceasing. In some ways, that'd be a, a great way to live our lives. And yet, if we were honestly to look at how we live our lives and how often we spend time in prayer or how often we lift our concerns to God, first and foremost, it'd probably be a pretty poor record of events. Yet that doesn't mean we ought not to remember that we are to pray always and not lose heart with what he wants for us. All right, so that is the gospel reading. Before we get to the psalm, are there any questions about any of the readings? No? All right, well, let's get to the psalm. I might actually get through all four. This would be like a new record. And after this, you can maybe see what the theme, why these readings are put together, because they may seem a little disjointed. 
at this point, but the psalm actually kind of uh, makes it a little clearer as to why these three readings are together. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What is the point of that psalm? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Where does your help in life come from? Your help is from the Lord. When we look at the epistle reading and Paul's reminder, his encouragement to Timothy, what does he encourage Timothy to do? To preach God's word, but to do what? Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And as we look at Genesis 32 and see God literally blessing Jacob, saying your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel, the children of Israel who are the children of God, God's chosen people. And in view of what Christ and what he has done, that also means you and I, that he has blessed them and that it was Jacob who relied on the Lord's blessing in the midst of a great struggle. And then with the gospel reading, where are we to take our comfort in? In God. Because how much quicker will God give to us his blessings and favor justice for his elect than that unrighteous judge. So it's really interesting when we think about all the things that are coming together in those three readings, the focus is very much, it's not about you. In some ways, it's, uh, it's not about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. When you're going through moments in life that are just too tough, feels like it's too hard to overcome, or even on your daily work, your daily lives, and things happen, where are we to look for help? Look to the Lord for your help. And when things that are good happen, we remember who caused them to happen? God. It's interesting, next weekend... Many of you know we're doing the cornerstone, the cornerstone for the new school building. And it's always, in my mind, sometimes uh, it's an interesting concept, you know, especially in today's modern culture where this cornerstone is, is kind of a ceremonial thing about the foundation. It's a time to get together. It has a date on it and where it's being built. And a lot of times different buildings will have different things, either time capsules or whatnot. But as we think about this church and we think about our lives and even the school, and the cornerstone of what holds it all together 
I think it's a great blessing. It's not just some masonry that has some etching in it, but truly that word of God, which is breathed out by him, the word of God, which tells us of what he's done for us, who we are to him and how much he loves us and just how faithful he is, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Uh, so if there, are there any questions? I'll ask one final time. Yes. That's a very good question. The, the, with the unrighteous uh, judge, the widow, he says that the reason he grants her request eventually is she was be- beating him down by her, her constant complaining, constantly coming to him. And the question is, is that how uh, God acts, or is that why God acts, for example, when we pray to him? And no, absolutely not, because God, the, the whole point Jesus is making is that even if this guy eventually gives justice, he's, it's the... Uh, contrasting this wicked, unrighteous judge who neither fears God nor respects man with God himself who loves those whom he has called. And so, no, it's not that uh, we beat down, so to speak, God and so then eventually gives in, but rather it's out of his great love and care and compassion for us that he grants us... uh, great blessings that, and mercies that, uh, as uh, the, hymn of, the opening hymn in the sanctuary said today, and great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies we'll see. So that would, I mean, does that kind of, oh, all right. Any other questions? All right, well, let's end with a quick prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today again so thankful for the many blessings that you do give us in life. We pray that as we go out in our life, that we would continually lift our eyes to you for our help. We pray that we would remember to look at your word for all things that we need and that uh, you would care and comfort us in the midst of all of life's struggles. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died and rose again from the dead. And it is in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.